is the forgotten adoption option? Many are aware of infant international adoption where you hire an agency, often wait a long time, and spend tens of thousands of dollars. And then there's becoming a foster parent where you may or may not adopt the children. But there is a third option where you adopt children directly from the foster care system. I call this the forgotten adoption option. In fact, 30% of children currently in foster care are adoptable, and you don't need to be a traditional foster parent to adopt them. Hi there, I am Marcy Bursack. After blogging my experience adopting a pair of biological siblings to the foster care system, people started asking me to explain the process to them. And it's difficult to navigate, but the families I mentor feel that knowing the barriers, the challenges, and what to expect has actually helped them persevere and pursue their dream of adopting. And while I would love to have a really big family, adopting thousands of children isn't exactly realistic, but I can teach others how. Whether you're trying to figure out how to get started, you're battling some doubts and fears, or maybe you know someone who wants to adopt, I'm here with resources to help others discern if foster care adoption is the path for them. And if it is, I have practical tips and resources for them as well. You can find all of these resources, which include my blog, three books, an app, and a classroom lesson at ForgottenAdoptionOption.com. However you found this podcast, I am so glad that you did. I want to extend an invitation to you to reach out to me to ask anything on your heart. My goal is to help every waiting child be in their forever family. And that's why I host this podcast. Welcome to the Forgotten Adoption Option podcast. In this episode, we will talk about connections to prioritize if you age out of the foster care system. Hi, Dr. Winter and Galen. Hey, Marcy, how are you? I'm excited to have you both here. This is exciting. I I don't always get two guests. I like when I have two guests. So this is a nice treat. We all get to see each other in Zoom, but our listeners don't get the benefit of that, but they get to hear all of our voices. So let me tell you who's here today. Dr. Winter is a foster youth voice whisperer, child welfare strategist, and systems thinker. She and I actually met after I published my first book, The Forgotten Adoption Option. A few local readers read my book and told me of the barriers they were facing as they tried to get licensed to adopt from foster care. And I was really frustrated. So I actually reached out to Dr. Winter and she took me under her wing and pointed me to some existing legislature. And I was able to share that with my state in Missouri. She's a powerhouse. You're going to learn so much from her. Galen Elmore is a professional speaker, a board member at the Association for Training and Trauma and Attachment in Children, and the Director of Coaching at the Forgotten Initiative. Dr. Winter and Galen have recently debuted their book called Follow the Love. It's about the importance of permanent connections for young people transitioning out of foster care. You may or may not know, this is a real statistic, every year, more than 23,000 children age out of the foster care system. That's two, three with three zeros after it, 23,000. My aim is to help find adoptive families for these children before this happens, but aging out is a real reality for many, as you can hear from that number. Elizabeth and Galen are here to help us learn about this important group of young people and how we can support them. So Dr. Winter, I'm going to turn it over to you. Why don't we start? You've had a very long career child welfare, even got doctor before your name. What led you into this type of work? You know, my life has been so cyclical. Um, And so it's really interesting. I um, got interested in um, wanting to be a a therapist um, at age 13 after my parents went through a really uh, rough divorce. And I felt at that age really lost um, and didn't have anyone to talk to. And so I really felt like, you know, when I grew up, right, I wanted to be that person that adolescents could speak to, right, to offer myself. And it was funny, as I um, finished with my master's degree and I'm a licensed mental health counselor, 
I, um, I started down the path of determining sort of which population I wanted to work with. And I tried out a lot of different populations. And when I hit foster care, um, I was in love. I mean, that was it because I'm sitting here looking at these young people who through no fault of their own have found themselves um, living in a, system, in a bureaucratic system. Um, and I felt like who is more important, right? And to, you know, for me to do, dedicate my time. And as the years went on, um, I ended up uh, getting my doctorate um, and did my dissertation on young people aging out of the foster care system and became the transitional independent living coordinator for Broward County and helped them develop a statewide model um, to support transitioning youth. And over the years, no matter which path my career has taken me, I have always found my way back to this group of young people who I just feel like we have a very short period of time in their lives um, where we can change the trajectory. And, and they are our children, right? These are the you know, wards of the state. And as I shared with you um, before, Marcy, you know, we brought, we took them from their families, promising them a better life, a better family, right? but we failed to reunify them. We failed to get them adopted or find any kind of legal permanency. And so, to, and then the idea that these young people at age 18 could somehow overnight on their 18th birthday, wake up and be independent the next day is a falsehood and it's really harmful. And so what I've learned over the years, because I have done a ton of research, I am a nerd, I re have read every piece of research that exists on transitioning youth. And what the research has said to me is the same thing I have seen in supporting youth councils and building youth leaders. I've heard the same thing. And it finally, after 25 years in the system, it just hit me like a, a light bulb, right? Where the most important thing, research says this, and I see it in the young people I've worked with, that the most important thing is a permanent connection with a supportive adult, and not just one. We should have connections with peers, with siblings, with relatives, with teachers, with coaches, all of those connections. But what happens in foster care is serial losses, severing ties with biological parents, continued changes in foster parents and caregivers, changes in case management, changes in therapists, all of those changes add up to really young people with a loss of identity, a, set, a loss of a sense of belonging. And so those that's sort of the reason it's like, we've got to make a shift and it's critical. We know statistics are clear. Young people aging out of foster care system are doing poorly across all domains. And so we have to do something to change this and this, you know, oftentimes, what is it? The Occam's razor, right? The simplest thing. This is a simple thing. We can solve this. And you know why? Because our United data, our National Youth and Transition Database data tells us when we ask young people, do you have a connection with a positive caring adult? At 21, 84% are saying they do. And so my question is, well, who are these people? And can I talk to them, right? Can we help them help you? And I just think that, you know, it's, and, and for child welfare, nothing is simple, right? We have to battle these adaptive challenges to be able to change how we see youth, how we value their voices, and then how we can really help them. 
build this scaffold, and we'll talk about that, this scaffold of permanent connections that can carry them beyond foster care, through foster care and beyond. It's amazing to me how this really difficult season in your youth made you passionate about a demographic and then how you've really, really leaned into that. I think that's absolutely beautiful. And I feel like some of our listeners might be very surprised at some of the realities that we're sharing. And that's really the intention of this episode is to, to bring awareness to this because this is real. Like these are people that are our neighbors and potentially in our family and our coworkers and need our help, right? That we can do something to, like you're gonna talk to us a little bit later, how to build those strong connections. So Galen, what about you? What drew you into child welfare? Yeah, I was drew in, I got attached, connected, associated with child welfare through my own personal experience being a kid navigating the system. Uh, I never imagined that I would be a professional or an adult on this side of it. So it's a very uh it's a it's a very interesting full circle kind of experience. But yeah, I, I entered foster care at a very young age, uh, spent most of my childhood in the Illinois child welfare system and uh, experienced anything that anything and everything you can imagine that a kid might experience navigating that and living in the system for over 13 years. Uh, yeah, it's so that's my I, I bring a lived experience kind of perspective and and just trying to use what I went through to to create a better future for people who don't have a voice or who don't have the authority agency or power yet. So uh, being able to, to partner with this uh, with Elizabeth for this book, but also in other formats as well has been extremely impactful in my own journey and, and healing. And uh, it's something I'm really excited about. Galen, how old were you when you went into the system? I was five months old when I first, or when I got my first placement and uh, stayed in care until just before 13 years old, I was officially like still in foster care. I, I got reunified with my biological father. And then at 16, my dad ran into some trouble, got arrested. And then I ended up becoming a uh, fictive kin kind of temporary, temporary guardianship relationship with one of my high school coaches and uh, teachers. So yeah, that's, as early as five months, really as old as till 18, uh, just not living stretch. in context and family with people who are not my family. And uh, so, yeah, that definitely shapes my perspective on the work I do today. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned a really interesting term, fictive Ken, which I think is interesting in this space. So there's Ken, which is like aunt, uncle, mom, grandma, yeah. like, like biological. Can you explain to our listeners what fictive Ken means? Yes. So fictive Ken is, is a term that, uh, kind of professional term that we came up with to relate to people who have relational connectedness to to youth navigating the system, but may not have any biological tie. So for my coach, he was a mainstay in my my time and in my life in that that point in time. And uh so he kind of benefited from this term that allowed me to be in his home, even though he wasn't a licensed foster parent, wasn't an adoptive parent, didn't have the training necessary, and he didn't have any biological tie to me or or my dad. So, so sometimes it would be like a neighbor or a teacher or a coach or things like that. But this is like a an area in in the foster care, especially foster care adoption space too. So I appreciate you sharing that. So I'm wondering, can you both kind of give us a picture of, so we're talking about, you know, youth that are aging out, 
help us understand why are they aging out of the system and what are the challenges they're facing as they are supposed to be independent and go on their own? You know, as you read the research um, and, and over the years, right, over the past several decades, um, young people are delaying adulthood. And I'll say it's now called emerging adulthood, this period of, you know, um, late teens, early 20s, um, where young people are now, and, and this is, you know, young, all young people are staying longer um, in their families, they're living at home after college, they're delaying um, marriage and children, right? Um, and so as that has changed, um, we are still sort of thinking that young people in foster care, somehow young people that have struggled through their childhood, somehow are going to do better than their same age peers. Um, and that's just not the case. And so, um, and we do know, all of us know, um, when we were 18, 25, 30, 35, we're still asking for loans from our parents. We're reaching out to them for guidance, right? And so even the concept of, of independence, even in some of the federal legislation, like the Chafee um, Act has changed. And, and by the way, for your listeners, the Chafee Act is one of the, the mainstays. Um, and so we've only been doing, and I say this only, we've only been doing independent living, right? Worried about kids over age 18 since 1999. So this hasn't been forever. So we have to remember we're still in our infancy in serving this group of young people. Um, but we've now got 23 years of research that tells us um, that we're not hitting the mark, right? And so, you know, you know, what do they need to be, you know, successful is they need people. They need consistency. They need safety. They need stability. They need security all the things that all of us need, right? They're not any different. Um, and when you think about, you know, self, just the time period of their lives, right? That self-discovery, who am I? Who do I want to be? What do I want to do with my life? Those are big questions that you need to talk through with someone. And I always tell everyone, you know, my daughter's transition, <laughs> she'll kill me, my daughter's transition when she was a senior in high school, it was every night crying, yelling, <laughs> same conversation every single night. What am I going to do? What, what am I going to major in? Like all of that, that anxiety. Now think about not having that trusted advisor, that trusted person in your life to have those ongoing conversations. We do transition planning in child welfare, but it's once a year or every six months and it has a group people that are on your team that you may not, and you're 16 years old, you're 17 years old. I've asked young people, what is that like being in that room and being asked the questions? What do you want to do for the rest of your life? Where do you want to, like big questions. And you're sitting there at 16. And honestly, I've asked a young person, she goes, I didn't know where I was sleeping that night. I would have told you anything just to get out of that room. I need And so we have to remember sort of, you know, where these young people are and 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 we've got to let them heal and be in a safe secure place before we can think about these kinds of intangible wants and desires right what they want is a safe and secure home and they haven't had one for a very long time and elizabeth i've heard from some youth that are now adults that have been in communication with me have shared things like it was really difficult for me to even have transportation 
I tried to go to college and like, I didn't know where I was sleeping. And even like those holiday breaks got really challenging. Are there other scenarios that you can share with our listeners so we can be aware of like, what are those challenges aside from like sleeping and eating, which are very, very basic and important needs. Is there anything else that we should be aware of? Oh my gosh, health insurance. I mean, if you can imagine for me, healthcare is so confusing and complex, right? And for a young person, yes, it's wonderful. They can get Medicaid up until age 26. But if you move, right, you have to reapply. Every year you have to reapply. And so, and then understanding like, where do you go if you can't get a refill for your psychotropic meds, but not having someone, it gets really confusing. And then you contact your healthcare provider and they're gonna tell you a whole lot more jargon <laughs> that you don't understand. And then housing, finding housing, right? That's really tough right now. And so really all of those things. And then about 30% of young women are leaving with babies. And so we really have to think about how are we supporting them? Because we know that abuse is cyclical. And if they haven't been taught how to be good, strong parents and they don't have enough support, what are the odds that these young people's children are then coming back into the system? And that's not something that we want. Galen, there's anything else you want to add to paint the picture for our listeners? Yeah, mo- uh, most definitely. I I think Elizabeth said it so well. I think something we talked about in the book and, and something that I, I felt very passionately about adding in is this, like, okay, we can think about our child welfare system and the skills and uh, giftings that we develop through experiencing it, right? Like we all, we, we develop habits, we develop kind of how we see the world through the things that we experience. And for me, I think there were a lot of things that we love to talk about in child welfare that I developed, right? We, we talk about this idea of resilient individuals. We talk about like, man, how you just continue to get up every day and continue to, to, to fight the fight that you have to endure, uh, but one thing that I think was most life impacting for me, and we talked about it in the book, was this idea or uh, the skill that I felt like I developed, was, which was not needing people, right? So like this, this consistent experience and theme throughout your life and your upbringing, that it actually is more beneficial for you to not need people than it is for you to need them. Because at some point, it's going to change. At some point, you're going to have a different social worker, at some point, you're going to be in a different foster placement. At some point, your parents aren't going to have parental rights. At some point, you're going to be in a new school. At some point, you're going to have new. And so honestly, the most adaptive, resilient skill that you can can develop and cultivate is the skill of not needing people. And so for me, it was like this transition into emerging adulthood, young like being a young adult of like, now I'm at this spot where our society likes us to think that we don't need people at that point of our development but that's when you need them the most. Like that's when you really figure out things for what they are and you fall back on the support relationships, connections that you have. And so, um, yeah, I got, I got into that kind of phase in my life and really was knocked off my feet by the, the one thing that I believe to always be true in my life, which was that I wasn't going to need people. And that was going to give me a, a leg up on every other peer that I had when the reality is, you get to that phase of life and everyone around you who has the support and connection they need, they're, they're needing people and they have people in their life that they can connect and rely on. And so I just, we, we got to understand that the very things and Elizabeth talked about this with the, with the Chafee act and talked about it with the 23 years of data that we have, we got to understand that the, 
the purpose that child welfare stepped in to serve, and especially this uh, independent living, is teaching people skills that are not productive for them in the long term. Like, yes, we can try to teach them how to change a tire. We can try to teach them how to budget and create a grocery list. But what happens when I had $250 of budget here, but my kid got sick and I needed to go buy over-the-counter medicine, and now I have to cut into that budget? Who can I rely on and lean on that can cover that $30 difference? Who can I fall back on that, yep, car just broke down. I don't have the money for the next couple of weeks to to get it fixed. Who's going to help me still get to my job and drop my kids off at ch- or at childcare? Like it's not needing people is fine if everything goes perfect, but we know in life things don't go perfect. And and so that's something that was really hard for me to to transition into even though I had people in my life that wanted to be there. Right? Like it's it's like I'm not even someone I was privileged. I got through it and still had people that wanted to be in my corner but I felt so uncomfortable with that. I had no idea how to begin to let them experience that and how to trust them enough to feel like that was something that was safe for me. So it's just, it's, I, I say it all the time, like child welfare is an imperfect solution to an impossible problem. Like it's, it's, it's a wrong answer, right? We are trying to fill a insurmountable hole and gap in the experience of other people. The least we can do is give them the relationship, the connection, the the support that they need to become everything that they could be, not just like these small skills or this understanding about how to uh, like, yeah, access to education is great. But what happens when you step on campus and you feel like I'm the only one here who does not belong? So those are the things that I experienced that uh, from Elizabeth's perspective and what she experienced on that side of child welfare that we've really tried to mesh together in in a digestible way so people can really understand what what young adults uh youth that are aging out of foster care really have to deal with and navigate those specific examples i'm like oh my goodness and i feel like maybe there's a listener out there too that's just like i had no idea like i had no idea that it's like a learned defense mechanism right like i don't need anyone but yet you do and so you have to like unlearn that was very very insightful and also really hard to hear you share through your journey. I really appreciate that perspective so much, Caitlin. So you two paired up to create a book. How did that happen? We just we just thought, you know what? People need to hear more of our voice and we're going to give it to them. No, I'm just kidding. It's It really came through a lot of uh, Elizabeth's kind of uh, her, her labor and really feeling the impacts of this in the, in the professional space. And Elizabeth and I had a chance to uh, cross paths at a conference that uh, in in Texas, where I think they are thinking really proactively of how can we do things differently to support uh, youth that are aging out of foster care, and and um, so we connected there. I'm I've been doing my work and speaking and, and consulting, which it it has an overlap with with connection, relationships, belonging, but not specifically with uh, transition age youth. And so where Elizabeth's experience comes in with that, uh, I think it it really quickly was a was a yes for both of us and then we also have another uh team member marisha who is a researcher who does is carrying a lot of my uh my slack of of not knowing the the not being a reader and a researcher that is a skill that i appreciate that other people have i do not have it um so yeah we we've been able to connect in that way and it's been a great thing what do you have to add elizabeth yeah um and so um Marcy, 
everything I've done is I've really drilled into, you know, transitioning youth is really my area of expertise. And so, um, and there's two things that are really important to me in all the work I do. One is that it, I, I really value lived experience. And so I wanted to make sure that when I, if I was going to write a book and I'm in the fourth quarter of my career, I'm, I, I'm desperate to leave a legacy, right? You try so hard to change things. And, and, uh, and so I'm continuing, right? Continuing that process. But there's two things that are really important to me. One is that um, the lived experience voice is really key. And so um, getting Galen on board was sort of my first step, right? And then um, Marisha, um, the other side is the research backed, right? We have research, let's use it in practice. So, you know, why, why not, right? It's telling us the things that we need to know and it's very clear in research how important these permanent connections are and to what, to Galen's point, is we need to train these supportive adults. We need to educate them on um, understanding, right? So understanding that this young person may not return your phone call. They, you know what I mean? They may not come over for the holidays, right? But to not take that as a, that they're not interested in a long-term relationship, right? They have their own fears, right? But to continue to open that door, to continue to tell them that you're there for them, um, and, and that it will take time, right? The attachment is an area that they struggle with. And knowing that doesn't mean that your care and that your, your, your love for them isn't important. It is vital. And so that's why I'm like, I want to know who these supportive adults are because, and here's the thing. If you ask a young person, who do you have in your life, right? If you take placement off the table, right? Oftentimes when we're looking for legal permanence, we're looking for placement. And so what happens, unfortunately, is many young people that are available for adoption, they came into foster care. These young people that are aging our foster care came into foster care at age 12 or 14. So they lived with their families. They know their families. And so they have a loyalty. And about 50% of them will go back to their families after they, even if parents' rights are terminated, they're continuing to have a relationship with them. Why are we pretending that doesn't happen? in the child welfare system. Instead of supporting them, working with the family and them to teach them safe boundaries and healthy relationships, to teach them the things, as opposed to going, oh, you have a no contact order, so we don't think you're you know, talking to your family. They are, that's where they're running away to. That's where they're gonna go back when they turn 18. We have to face the reality of this and then lean into it. Because if those are their caring adults, if, if the bio parent is a caring adult when they leave 18, awesome, right? We it, it, At that point, we're not concerned about safety that we were concerned about at a younger age. And so I think we just, a lot of what we're talking about in the book really is how do we shift our perceptions? And once we can shift our perceptions, we can change policy to really support this work. But we have to, again, if we can put relationships first, Right. And then put youth voice. Right. So we have to value youth voice. We have to be willing to listen. And sometimes the way it's going to come out, it's it's not going to be nice. <laughs> right. But they're sharing it with it. I had a young person who said this to me. I'm sharing this experience not to make you feel bad, but to change it for those who come behind me. And we have to hear it because if we're not willing to listen to it and don't take it as a complaint, but as 
these are our customers. They're giving us feedback. Let's work like a for-profit business and value customer feedback and do something with it. That's so good. Well, and you mentioned earlier too, just about how like all of the research is very clear and I have a day job in the business world. And so I'm like, yeah, we, we look at data, data makes decisions and, and we have the data that tells us exactly where the needs are. I think that's incredible. Okay. So your new book is called Follow the Love. Who is it for? What can readers gain from it? Um, well, I'll let Galen jump in in a moment, but it's really written for um, child welfare stakeholders. So whether that means it's a, a state, you know, state leader, or it's an agency CEO, or an independent living specialist, or a case manager, or a foster parent, or an adoptive parent. Um, I think all of them, oh, and let me not forget policymakers, because there's some recommendations in there about policies that could be changed to improve things for young people. Um, but it really lays out a plan, um, a holistic plan that talks about people, right? Who are the people that we need to engage in this? And we call them, we sort of set up a scaffold as our, as our setup. Um, but it was really written for all of those players to really say, we can make this change. This is possible. This is doable. And by the way, while 23,000 sounds like a lot, when you compare that to the 400,000 that are in the child welfare system, it's a small number. We can fix things for that number. It's possible. We can do this, but we have to address it both with um, adaptive and technical solutions. And so in the book, we talk about different trainings like co-regulation, co-design, positive youth development, really those kinds of trainings that will not only help um, stakeholders relate to youth, but oftentimes having youth in those trainings help stakeholders get to know them, to build those authentic relationships. And so we hope that from this book, um, that folks will be interested in um, learning more, right, about those trainings, help, you know, us helping them really move the needle and take this solution um, and build it into their strategies to improve things in their state. I think uh, an important aspect of what we've been able to put together, and, and Marcy, I think you talked about it already, of just like putting the, the um, putting all of this in a way that we can all relate to on a personal human level. Right. Like we can we can read the research and and that's why I make that those jokes about Marisha. But we can look at the research and, and we can see it. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing or just our country. Like we can read things and totally disassociate from it so quickly. But I think we're really trying to make this we're trying to appeal to the to the human of everybody, of all the readers of like, think about ways in your life that you've had the necessary permanent connections and how it added value or in the moments where you lacked it, how it kind of took away from the experience you you felt like you should have had. And so really just trying to, to trying to appeal to like the empathetic side. And and I think we've been able to do that in a way that is uh is different. And so that's why I think every, on top of everything that Elizabeth just shared, uh is is something that that readers can really expect to get out of uh our book. Yeah, helps them know like what it is. And I, I just think to your point about why, why we like hearing like the empathy side, why is that important? And I, I don't know how you all relate on this. I mean, you, you've lived at Galen, you've been in this, but I often think, man, that could easily have been me. That easily could be in, in a heartbeat. You know, one thing could have changed in my childhood. I could have been that kid, you know, and what would I have wanted? And and I think that's hopefully what we're helping listeners here as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's just 
again, we do, we do this like us and them kind of experience, like out of sight, out of mind. We don't have to think about or be concerned with the experience of people that are seem like a different world than us, but you, you become a, a parent and you get older and you really can empathize to like, like one of the hardest things I've had to do is really empathize with my parents in their position, right? Like how really they were just children that became parents and adults who didn't have the necessary permanent connections in their own lives. And that's what Elizabeth was just talking about with this, this, the cycle of all of this. And so oftentimes we want to, we want to hold people accountable and we want there to be responsibility and we want there to be justice and we want all these things we're talking about connection like that is the real justice that is the real benefit of doing this work well is not that parents pay or that people are held accountable for their decisions but that people get their human right to connection like that's really what we're talking about no and in the child welfare system we move so fast and we have so much um uh, so many requirements that we are focused on and and what but connection doesn't happen quickly right you know and that what we always focus on legal permanence but if you don't have a relationship but underneath that then will that adoption succeed will that placement succeed right and so we're talking about slowing it down slowing it down to give time and space to build authentic relationships um, to value connection rather than sort of, you know, okay, we need to move this kid, right? And we don't pay any attention to what relationships. In fact, sadly, we don't even give young people the opportunity often to go through their grief and loss as they move from placement to placement. In fact, sometimes we're not even honest with them that they're going to be moving, that we sort of ambush them and say, here's your bags, we're moving today. And that just really, it makes me sick <laughs> to my stomach to think about that. Because these are young people, right? Whatever they're doing today, um, one, number one, they're adolescents, right? So we must give <laughs> some understanding of this is adolescent behavior, some of it. But then the trauma that they've been through and then the lack of stability and the serial losses they've had, we really need to pay specific attention to giving them space and time to build connections. And then once they've built them, we as a system have to value them and help them sustain and strengthen them over time. Wow, I feel like there's so much wisdom in what you will just share. There's just, wow, lots of good provoking, like thought provoking pieces there. So we've been talking a lot about connections and about permanent connections, not just any connections and how that's an important asset for young people aging out of the foster care system. Can you explain why that permanent part is so important? So this isn't just like having a friend for a month, but it's like really having someone rallying in your corner for years and months to come. Why, why is there a difference there and why does that matter? Yeah, I, I think it's important to think of permanent as like an oath, right? Like think of it as something like this is my commitment to you and like, let's use marriage, for example, right? Like there's this underlying commitment on both sides that like, I'm going to be here on the best days. I'm going to be here on the worst days. And there's so much about navigating child welfare that it, that, you know, like even on top of your worst days, like this might change everything, right? Like this might change my home. This might change my school. This might change the relationships and connections I do have. And so the reason it permanent is in there is because 
we are making this, we need people in the lives of transition age youth to make this commitment. Like I'm going to be here, even if you don't take my advice, even if you make the decision, I told you not to 10 times. And you like, you see the outcome of your, your decision-making, like I'm still going to be here. Cause that's where growth happens. That's where change happens. Like imagine if, so I have young children, right? I have a three and a half year old and a one year old. Imagine if my three and a half year old, what she was doing today was standing on top of the couch. Right. And I'm like, don't jump, do not do it. Don't do it. You're going to hurt yourself. And then she just jumped. Am I just gonna be like, yep, I'm not going to help you anymore. Right. Like, it's not just this exchange of like this string or this strings attached kind of methodology of if you do what I say you should do, then I can be here until then. Like, until, or if at some point you go against what I say, or you don't listen to my advice, or you make a decision I wouldn't necessarily make or agree with, then like we have to cut ties. And as we get into adulthood, part of being an adult is like having control of the wheel, having decision-making power. But at the same time, how are we helping them learn how to wield that power well? And you only do that by being in, li- in the lives of the people you care about being there, being accessible, being a uh, someone to lean on, but also someone to go to, right? Like lean on oftentimes is this negative connotation of like, I'm falling and I need help or something's, but what about like getting to a point where I can proactively come to you for, for support, for wisdom, for guidance before I get there? Like, that's what we're trying to get to. And so it's, it's permanent matters so much because we are showing the youth that that ultimately up until this point have not had have have had everything but permanent we're showing them like i'm going to be different like this time is not the same this time it is not um uh, it is not dictated by the perceived worth that you feel like you may have or you may not have it is based on your dignity and what you deserve as an individual and i believe in you enough to be here as you figure that out, those words changes, those words change lives. That kind of commitment changes someone's perspective and like from what you've gone through in your past, but also what you're capable of going forward. And uh, I think that's why we put an emphasis on that and what our, really our book alludes to the entire time. Cause it's really not the acquaintance approach. It's like really people that are rubber meets the road and going to walk out this whole thing with you. Thanks for clarifying on that. So as we wrap up, listeners might be thinking, okay, I know a youth is about to age out of the foster care system or one that recently did, or I want to get involved. What resources would you point folks to? And can they contact the two of you? Of course they can contact us. Do you have a website you can point them to? It's going to be drwinter.com. And Galen, you've got a website. Yeah. So absolutely people can reach out here. I First resource, like obviously if you're listening to this, the book's out. So first resource, go to the book. Uh, it's some really good stuff there. Uh, secondly, if you if you want to get in contact with me or or Marisha or Elizabeth, I I feel like all of us would be open to that. Uh, my my website is galenspeaks.com. So Galen, my first name, and then speak as in the verb with an s dot uh, com. So my email is on there. I'm pretty accessible. I've like this whole thing is about relationship, and so I try to be as accessible as possible because. That's where that's where change happens. So definitely you could reach out. That's good. Dr. Winter, anything you want to add? I mean, they could always find me on LinkedIn too. So that's how we met. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I love that. This has been such an enlightening conversation. I hope that it sparks people to really think through and discuss the content that you shared. I hope they go and read your book. Thank you both so, so much for sharing your hearts and Galen, your story. Thank you for that. And Dr. Winter, thank you for what you're doing with your career and your, your fourth quarter. It's amazing to see where this is taking you. So thank you both so much. Listeners, did you know that you've helped the Forgotten Adoption Option podcast rank in the top 30% most followed podcasts on Spotify? You are helping waiting children be seen and you're teaching our nation how to adopt these children. You can help this podcast reach more future adoptive parents by leaving a review and continuing to share this podcast with others. You can even help others know that instead of Googling to try to figure out how to adopt, they should go to ForgottenAdoptionOption.com where they can learn the step-by-step process, tips for enduring the journey, and I even have a children's book to celebrate the forever families all around us. It means so much that you took the time to listen to this episode. And on behalf of the 113,000 children who each has a name, a story, and dreams and deserves to grow up experiencing the love and support that is found in a forever family, I thank you so much for caring.